Hi, Larry. Hey, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Um, as someone who also interviews a lot of producers and recording engineers, what led you to start Tape Hop in those early days? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's it really was like I was learning. I was I was running a home studio. Like I was um, recording on an eight track half inch uh, Tascam in my basement <laughs> with a little mixer, and I just didn't I didn't know where to go to learn stuff. Like I had gone to the library and I'd read a bunch of books about music recording, and I had gone to um, yeah, I looked at the magazines that were out there and I'd read all them, but they never were talking about the kind of world that I was in, you know, like using old used equipment and doing things like actually doing real records on a budget, you know, really small budgets and that kind of stuff. So I thought I would just start asking around like people who were recording themselves and people that had small studios that were affordable and just interview them because I never, I'd never, uh, I'd never seen the interviews of people that were running studios for 15 bucks an hour or 20 bucks an hour. It was always these steely band studios. It's like, you know, the big console, (laughs) you know? So I thought, and also I had been working, I've been writing for like underground zines for a long time. So, and I, and all of them had folded and I had nothing, I had no job opportunities for writing. And I thought, why not write about music recording since I'm trying to learn that? And just kind of instead of having like a broad music focus or something, you know, interview bands and have a focus on recording was kind of fun. Is there any one interview or a few interviews you can think of that kind of changed your recording methods the most? Oh boy. Um, it's probably all of them, you know, it really is like little subtle things, you know, and, and watching other people in the studio sometimes. Somebody would be, you know, like, oh, we got to smash that with a compressor. I'm like, well, what do they mean, smash it, you know? Um, but there's just been lots of little tricks. There was one, I forget who who the person was we interviewed a long time ago, who said something about using a crossover while mixing and splitting up a bass guitar track into three frequency bands. And I was like, whoa, yeah, okay, control, you know? Um, so things like that happen sometimes. And... Um, but really, I like, you can tell that what I pick up in the stories is like, I like people's career path or whatever to kind of talk about how, how they ended up doing it. And, uh, and just sort of, you know, how for, for me, partly what, and we had that email exchange about this earlier, but like my, my focus is kind of on the people and their and things that happen and what they learn and how these things happen. And, um, and, and just to find out those stories, I find really interesting, you know, so you'll see more of that than you see, you know, like specific, how do you do this or that? Because I think that always changes, too, for all of us, you know, you know, techniques are, are great, but we're all, we might try different things on different sessions all the time, you know, it's hard, hard to tell. Although, kind of, despite that, is there any <laughs> interview that's cost you the most amount of money in terms of someone sort of name dropping a product that you've then gone and? Oh, checked out. Um, <laughs> you know, I, probably not. Although, I mean, mostly it's going to trade shows, you know, like going to the AES or NAM show. And that's kind of like when I first saw like schematics for the Rupert Neve designs 5088 console. And I saw blueprints that, that 
that they had. And I went, oh, okay. And ended up owning one, you know, after they went into production. So that's probably the most, that's the most expensive thing I've ever bought. That was somewhere in the realm of 56,000, you know, <laughs> um, you know, and I would, I did like confer with people that already bought one, you know, and ask them about it, what they thought, you know, so that kind of thing. But in the interviews, you know, it's, it's usually not gear lust. And then my studio now is very well equipped. Uh, or certainly too. It's like, I'm, there's not much I'm, you know, going after, but it, I would learn along the way. I would learn what equipment I was just not really satisfied with. And that, those would be the real, it wasn't lusting for another thing. It was getting sick of the one thing I had in front of me, <laughs> like a console that was like, I had a Mackie console and I had no polarity switches. Right. And that, that's annoying, you know, and you're trying to check the drums or something. And then I had an Allen and Heath console and it was just starting to fall apart. It was just, it just was at the end of its life. <laughs> and, uh, in my, my studio manager at the time, she was a really great producer engineer too. And she would, she was like, you can make a better mix in the box now than this console can do. So those kind of concepts are what, you know, well, if we're going to offer services and offer a console, it better be a really good one. Right. Changes there. Then, then you spend the money. <laughs> yeah, sure. What was the first really great microphone that you got that you were satisfied with? Oh, the I I've had I can't believe I sold it, but I bought um there's two microphones and they're both made by the same people. Uh the first one was when I was working with Elliot Smith, he had a microphone by Longevin called a CR three A, which is sort of a U eighty seven style, phantom powered uh, large diaphragm condenser, and it was made by Manly uh, Labs. Manly Labs built these, and they put it under that name because it wasn't tube. And then I got the uh, Manly Cardioid Reference microphone, which is their tube large diaphragm mic. And I'd never really heard a mic like that. I think I maybe someone had put one up that was engineering something I was playing on, but I'd never sat there and listened to it as like, you know, is this better than this other thing? And that, um, that tube mic... Was, was just great. Actually, I used it on the Decemberist uh, Her Majesty's record, um, as all the vocals are through that. And Colin has a very mid-range presence vocal, and it kind of cuts some of that out. It's kind of a, almost kind of a little scooped mic, you know, as far as frequency response and in sort of a way. Not like it's got no mids, but it it handles the mids very gracefully. But I sold it a few years ago. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you sell and then you kind of think about it later. You're like, I could have used that again, you know. <laughs> but I've got a lot of mics. I've got like 100 mics or so now. So there's probably enough. <laughs> is your usual approach to, I mean, I'm sure it differs a lot for each project, but is your usual approach to recording to kind of go for everything live or try and Depends. do that and keep certain things? Yeah. Or? Like I just did a punk band, kind of punky, Weezer-ish band. In Portland, we did the we did all the tracking in three days, and so I you know they they'd done demos, but they'd done the demos like bit by bit, you know, track at a time, and it was nice to get them in there and playing together and talk about how the parts were working or not, and you know get like there was one song the bass player is having a hard time, and you're not going to hear that. It's going to take longer maybe, and you might not hear it till later if you're kind of putting pieces together, you know. So I I've set up that jackpot. When we moved into our new building 12 years ago, we built like, there's like three ISO booths ready to go that you can put things in. And uh, and the band could be on headphones and there's all these like wall throughputs for 
for guitar cables and all sorts of stuff. It's it's a real rock and roll, ready to go studio. <laughs> so you can get set up fast like that. Yeah. Do you do much of kind of recording everyone just in that main room with all the amps blaring and that sort of thing? Or not you know, like where they're all blasting over each other? Yeah. I used to like if you listen to um, uh, one like uh, All Hands in the Bad One by Slater Kinney, that was like you know two guitar amps, three guitar amps in the live room with just a little office divider baffle and then the drums next to it. And, uh, you know, I used to have to do that just because we didn't have an isolation closet. But I find that I like the control. I think that, I think it's neat when the stuff kind of bleeds and when you have to do it work that way, you can set it up well. But it's also like there's invariably something someone wants to change, right? You know, and then you're kind of trapped. <laughs> So I try to keep options open too, just in case, you know. Yeah. Did you have any techniques that um, to help kind of work with bleed? You know, besides the obvious check in polarity, like even just subtly, like what could be bleeding across the room into the drums. One of the things that works really well, and I did this the other day, someone hired me to come record a band in a basement onto an eight track cassette recorder. <laughs> which sounds like a problem. And um, they had, you know, if you think about the concept of, of this, like a typical approach would be to be to have the drums over at one end of the room and the amps on the far other end and to get them away from each other. But sometimes the problem with that is then you've got this like, you know, echoey far away guitar sound coming into the drums. So there were these shelves there and they were just like, kind of like hip high and I put them in front of the drums as if they were amps, like sitting in front of the toms. And then I put the amps in front of those shelves. So now the guitar and bass amps were facing out away from the drums and not facing towards them. And besides the snare rattle, which probably would have happened anyway, you know, from the bass vibrating the bottom snare, it was, it actually sounded really like super phase coherent. And there wasn't like that distant amp in the room sound at all on the drums and, and uh, I was really pleased with myself because I'd heard of this trick of putting things closer in order to have better separation, which sounds ridiculous, but it actually, it works really good. So I would, I would always highly recommend that. Yeah. I do a lot of my recording doing kind of everyone live in a hall that I work in with kind of no, of any little bit of isolation, which is like curtains. So I'm always interested in people kind of giving good tips and, Oh yeah, if you can get them closer, then your your phase and stuff are better. So that's kind of what goes against everything you'd think. You know, it's funny because that those sounds that are coming from further away. We we our ears locate them so much. You know, our nature is to hear sounds and go, "Where's that coming from?" So then, when you got an amp across the room and you're hearing it in the drums, if it's not the right feel for that, it can sound kind of weird. You know. This, it sounds more messed up than something that's close. It's a theory. <laughs> Are there any um, other rooms you can think of that you've worked in that have been kind of problematic in one way or another? Oh, God. The worst is what rooms where where people keep walking in and out, and you're like at some other studio, and uh, you probably, I think you do a lot of mobile recording, right? Like take your rig around. And, yeah, and it's like, man you know, when you, someone says, yeah, come here and we'll have this room. And then someone keeps opening the door and closing it while you're tracking or something. 
or just wandering through and staring. I, w- I worked at this place. It's it's closed down now. It's a place in Portland, and there was a hallway like right by your control room, and it went past the live room too. And and I don't know why if a door was open or if there was a window, but it would just felt like we were kind of on display the whole time. And we don't know who these people were going up and down the hall. They just stop and look, and you're like, this is really annoying. I worked in a studio in L.A., which uh, will remain nameless. Um, but, uh, you know, there was like two people. It, it was a really inexpensive studio. And they gave you like a studio manager and kind of like an assistant, which is really, I mean, it's kind of nice. But it's like I don't really need help generally. And I was like starting to get drum sounds. And there was like this little audience of them sitting on the couch, like just staring at what I was doing. And I was like, get out of here. <laughs> it just felt like, you know, I felt like they were going to be judging. Like, that's not a good snare sound. And I really wanted time with me and the band because I wanted to protect the band from these people and the studio, which I ended up having to do because things were really faulty in the studio. And I really, you know, I want to bond with the band and be strong with them and not and get the other people out of the way, you know. So those kind of things are really annoying. Yeah, I'm, I was doing a session literally yesterday where, I thought we'd kind of have half the building to ourselves for recording, but as it turns out, the only toilets in the building were right next to where we were recording. So, <laughs> just yeah. about the worst, <laughs> depending on noises and smells. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing you know, I remember when I was looking for a studio space twenty some odd years ago, and Elliot Smith and I were driving around in my beat up old pickup. And I remember going to this place, like this realtor is showing us a room. And we're like, well, what's above? What's below it? And he's like, he seems so non-concerned with that. And we're like, we'll drive people crazy, like, you know, or they'll drive us crazy. You know, like if there's a yoga studio below, it's just not going to work, you know. And uh, I think people don't understand how much sound transmits. You know, you just can't sound. Sound proofing is like ha 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 you know like it's it's millions of dollars to separate two rooms to really not be able to hear a drum set in one room next door you know i mean you just can't do it so you have to find places where you have isolation and and, you know space around you (laughs) there's a there's a place in portland called the old church and uh, you can hire it out and track things in there and it's super reverby like there's a big pipe organ and the reverb time on it's just ridiculous. It's like, really hit a drum or something. But you can you can hire it out, and my friends did that um, for some classical type stuff. But then every once in a while, somebody would do this, pop open a door, and then slam it, and it would just like, like a reverb around the room. And you're like in the middle of a take. If you didn't happen to notice they were doing it, you know, then you're we're taking a isotope RX, you know, trying to draw out the little noises. <laughs> You have to do that. I haven't had anything that bad yet. I've had people come in between takes, but um, I nearly knock over my ribbon mics, but apart from that. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty annoying. Yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, when a, when you shut a door in a room, if it's the right size, probably not a big one, but a smaller one, you'll you're compressed the air, and you'll get these huge low-end spikes of air pressure variants. You know, it'll blow the mics out. You'll look over and you'll see all these overs on your room mics and you're like where'd that come from and it's just someone shutting the door you know i had a session once where like the guitar player these guys weren't the smartest the brightest of bands you know 
and the guitar player brought like his little kid and the kid kept going like in the middle of a take he'd open the door and walk into the live room from the control room hey daddy like and shut and shut it and it was like it was blowing out the mics and i was like i had to tell him like can you keep your kid on the leash man (laughs) if it's all right with you i thought we could go through um kind of how you like to record each instrument and kind of oh (laughs) yeah i know you're not I'll give you a hundred answers. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a good thing, really. Leads to other things, and sure. If you could think, so maybe like a typical rock session. Mm-hmm. If someone had a kind of drum kit in there and they didn't have any kind of opinions about how they wanted it to sound, what would your first yeah. go-to kind of miking techniques be? I definitely, I definitely have. A, despite what I say, I have like a current favorite, you know, set of stuff. Um. I'll start with the kick drum. Like I'll do a, a speaker mic. I have one that I built just like an $8 speaker into a DI box. Um, uh, a Hamptone DI is what I use for that. It's a, a company that I'm actually the people that own my building own the Hamptone company and they build stuff. It's a really great phantom powered DI. It's super accurate. JFET. And then I'll use, um, I've used a lot of the Telefunken mics, the new, new Telefunken. And the Telefunken M82, it was their kick drum mic, which I really like the sound of that. Really good. And I'll put that, usually if there's a hole in the shell, in the front head, you know, I'll put it in the usual spot. And then snare drum, I use an M80SH, which is also a Telefunken. And on the bottom of the snare, I'll use, um, the other day I used an Audix i5. Um, And then sometimes I use this EV mic, which is a, Oh boy, I forget the model number, like a 604 or something. It's an omnidirectional uh, dynamic mic. It looks like a little mag light. Um, boy, I could look it up. But it's 635. Maybe. I'm so bad. I'm the worst person with, um, with <laughs> model numbers and stuff. Let me open this up real quick. I'm going to look at the jackpot. Uh, I can look at our equipment list. I always forget the name of this mic. I don't know. If it's just me not having a brain like that, uh, let's see. Um, Do five four, yeah, they look like you know they look like those little look like a silver mag light. Um, but I love that mic. It's you can put it up really close, like under the snare, it doesn't get boomy, but it does pick up a nice full bottom low end because um, it's omni. Um, yeah, they're really cool. They're good on a drum kit too. And then um, the toms, I use either um, Audio-Technica PL230s, which are a newer mic, dynamic mic they make, or I use blue um, Dragonflies, the condenser mics with a little swivel head. <laughs> and I don't do, obviously, I don't use anything that's very typical <laughs> for most studios. And then on the overheads, I use the Telefunken M260s a lot, the small diaphragm tube condenser mics. Um, it's probably usually almost always those. Or, uh, God, what did I, I did a record in mono a while back, and I think I put some kind of large diaphragm tube mic up there. Or maybe the Wonder, actually, this is good, a really good mic is the Wonder. Uh, oh, God, see, I'm so bad. CM7? I think it's, it's is that the, is that the, uh, it's the U47 the, copy. No, the fat one. It's like a seven CM7 fat or something. Boy, I'm so bad. This is insane. It's that silver one. <laughs> Let me look real quick. 
Hey, a CM7 fat. That's right. I'll keep this open so I can refer to it. Um, and that, and I might use that on the outside kick if it's a uh, sealed kick. But I like, um, I'll also use it over the drums because it can handle a lot of sound pressure. And then in the room, I'll put like probably an AEA R84 or something across the room. And I'll turn it so the null is facing the drums. You know, so I'm pointing away 90 degrees away from the drums to get like a room sound. I don't do like a mid-side thing with it, but I'm kind of using the mid-side thing that, you know, the figure eight mode to, to capture more room. And I'll compress the bejesus out of that with like a, uh, what is that one, the Chandler TG1 compressor. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's kind of the basic. My mic pre's now, I got one of those Grace uh, 801. Um, it's like a, it's an eight-channel mic pre. And I'll just use that for all the main mics. It's just like, like having a mini console, you know. It's just got really crazy transient response. It's very clean. And I don't really go with my mic pre's and stuff. I don't really go for adding character to the mic pre's in general. I set levels very, um, very conservatively. Um, I'm more about just capturing at that stage. And, and I'm more about changing out snare drums and tuning and, and, and you know, changing sticks and, you know, moon gel, <laughs> moon gel on the snares and, and, and treat it. I have a lot of drum, I have like two drum sets and a bunch of snare drums. So I'll swap things out till I think it sounds good. If the, if the drummer lets me. <laughs> so that's kind of my stuff. You know, I really, a lot of the things I do, probably one of the things I learned from all these interviews is, is that if you work in some of those old school styles, you know, like, if you think about changing it on the floor before you think about changing the mic pre-level, you're, you're going to have more, far more, uh, you're going to get much better results, you know? And so I just, I work a lot. Like I think like if I'm, I think I'm like the fifties or sixties, you know, and I'm super limited is how I think in my head. <laughs> so it's kind of fun to work that way. Was that record on mono? Was that the band's kind of artistic request? It was a concept they had, like, like, could we, could we do a record in mono and, and, you know, what would you do different? Cause you know, some people could mix a stereo recorded record in mono, but then it'd be kind of, it'd be kind of stupid. Right. You know, if you had stereo overheads, like I always do, and then you're like centering them. <clears throat> so this was just like, there was, this is smart of the artist because the guitarist who's kind of the main impetus of the band I think he kind of knew that if he got me thinking about it, that I would be all excited and put more energy into it than if it was just a typical session. <laughs> and now I'm thinking, like, what can we do on the next session? You know? Did you have to approach the mixing for that differently than you usually would if you can't get <clears throat> instruments out of the way of each other with panning? Yeah, more the tracking. I thought about it way in advance. So I wouldn't double up guitars, and you know, because I'd like to double them up and pan rhythm guitars. So I didn't do doubles. If I did a double, I made sure it was a very different sound. And I would move the mic back off the amp so it had more of a depth of field going on. Um, and that worked really well. And then, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I really, I got really involved. Steve Turner from Mud Honey was playing bass on this. And, and I was really, he's not really a bass player, so I'm, I am. <laughs> so I was like coaching him through like, hey, put a whole note there. And, and he was loving it. He was really super fun to work with. And, so it was really, you know, and a very, the drummer of this guy, Tom Sullivan, was on it. Just very, very, very good. Lots of experience. And he really, he he's a guy who plays with a sealed front head, and he plays old 
you know, 60s, 70s drums that he collects. And he just makes it, he balances the kit. The thing they always say, like about John Bonham or somebody, it's like, oh, they would balance the kit. This guy really does that, you know. So if he's playing a sealed kick drum, he hits it pretty hard and it projects into the room really well. And you're not sitting there going, how do I get this to work? You're like, this works, you know. So that's kind of the battle. And with him, I put the mic kind of looking at him. You know, I think I, I think I used that wonder mic and I, I would put it out in front of him, kind of looking at the kit. So there was a depth of field there that he'd be behind the, the close mic instruments, you know, and the vocal. So it was all very specific. And so when it came to mixing it, the, the uh, Rupert Neve console has little uh, push buttons to engage panning. So I just left them all out, obviously. So everything's going to be perfectly centered. And I mixed a quarter inch. This is all tracked on 16 track, two inch. And then I mixed a quarter inch stereo, but I never panned anything. And I told the mastering engineer, you know, make sure nothing has any discrepancies left to right. Um, so, yeah, it came out good. I heard it on vinyl a while back and it sounded really nice. It just kind of projected, you know, pretty fun. Can you think of the least amount of mics you've ever used on a drum kit on a session? Yeah, maybe like two. I did, I did three mics on that thing in the basement. It was with the same exact band that we did the mono thing. <laughs> um, we did like a KSM 32, a Shure mic over the kit, and then uh, something on the kick and snare. <laughs> uh, some kind of dynamics. Well, I can't remember. Really simple, you know. I tend to just completely avoid using SM57s if I can. Uh, I just feel like everyone's using them, so I'm not going to use them. <laughs> You know, and I, the reason that the guy had a KSM 32 at his house is because I had told him like, that's a really good kit. I used one or two of those. They're a great deal and they're really versatile, you know? So there's a lot of, there's so many microphones out there that are affordable and really good. And they're just not the ones that the idiots are clamoring on about, you know? And it's like, man, you can, you can set up a really good array of microphones for, you know, spending like, two or three hundred bucks a bike, you know, stuff that's out there. There's, I don't think people need to, I mean, I enjoy having an $8,500 telephone in U47 and a really good mic, but there's a lot of other choices, you know. People just get too obsessed over these name brands and stuff. Continuing on from that, have you got any mm-hmm. favorite vocal mics? And of course, the telephone can. Yeah, <laughs> that gets trotted out. But, you know, honestly, like on this punk record I was doing, I wanted a, I didn't want to do like a fit of an SM7 or something, which would be kind of a typical go-to. And I have another mic. I have a, a Bill Bradley's a microphone repair guy in Nashville, and he builds. He has a company called Mic Shop or the Mic Shop, and he has an MS47 that he builds, which is, you know, I think like half the price of the Telefunken, and uh, and it's also got a lower it. The Telefunken's running at a pretty high output voltage and stuff, whatever electronics going on. And this mic is definitely down lower. So if you're shouting into it and stuff, you're less likely to clip. And and uh, it works really good for like a noisy vocalist. And you're out, so your output level not being super hot, you don't have to worry about your preamp or padding it coming in or anything. I like that mic a lot. And then, uh, oh, another one I just used on a session was the Bronner um, Valvet Voice. And if you look it up, that's a pretty, they only made 500 of these mics. And uh, I've got number two. <laughs> I 
I'm assuming, assuming that Mr. Bronner has number one. And uh, it's just another, like, a large diaphragm tube mic, but it's just, it was made just to record voice. And you pretty much could just put it on anyone. It's going to be a great starting point. You, you're not going to, it's, it's not going to be the mic that's a problem, you know? So that's a, that's a really good one that no one ever talks about, you know? And there's, boy, there's numbers of others in, in Jackpot. It's kind of crazy. Sound Deluxe, the Bach mics, you know, got a 251 of his. It's just amazing, you know. So there's some good good options. Do you normally um, process things on the way in or leave it for mixing? It super depends, you know. I mean, sometimes I like to print reverbs and echoes and stuff. I've got a plate reverb, an EMT-140 that's heavily customized. And I might track that even into the session just in case, in case it can't dial it back in the same, <laughs> you know. And I've got a, a full tone, a tube tape echo, which is like an echoplex. And sometimes I'll track people through that just to have a real live, real delay. Um, and then like like on the Slater Kenny's record, the Slater Kenny records that John Goodmanson and I made, we, uh, he would just commit to like everything, you know, there might be singing through stop boxes or we'd come up with a signal path where everything was just dedicated. And especially if you listen to a record called one beat, if there's an effect, if there's a really overt effect on a vocal, it's probably printed that way. You could probably put the faders up and go, yeah, that's, there it is, you know? So that's kind of cool. I thought that was a really ballsy way to work and really fun. And the girls thought it was great. They were, it made them sing excited because they could hear these effects going or these distortions. It was really fun. I guess moving on to electric guitar, have you got any kind of favorite mm-hmm. mics? <laughs> have you ever seen a, a Dynamount? It's like the, it's like a motorized mic stand. Oh uh, yeah, like mic. Eric Valentine kind of. Yeah, and it yeah. can and you can move it around. I think Eric had one like that he had built a long time ago or something custom. And then uh, these guys at Dynamount made make these and sell them now. And, and uh, I will I like using two mics on guitar amps, but invariably people usually do it wrong. You know, it's always out of phase. And so putting one static and one on the stand and then you know moving them to, and listening for polarity um, is really the best. You know, and I'll tr- pretty much almost always use like a Royer R121 on electric guitar and then like uh, either a dynamic or a or that Longevin CR3A probably um, being the other mic that I blend in and I have a custom little uh, mixer that's just two channels it's like a balance knob and it's all discrete and it's two channels in one channel out and you just turn it left or right and uh, I'll run into that and print it through one channel because I don't like having those options later <laughs> I don't want anyone else to have the option to throw it out of phase. And I don't think that Pro Tools, um, I don't think that the phase within Pro Tools is absolute. I've, I've had situations where I can't get things back in phase. And I think that's part of some really bad uh, line coding on their part. So I don't, I, you know, I know it might be hypocritical because obviously the drums are going to have issues if that's true. But I never can get guitars to sound good if I track them in two channels and one amp. And so I just blend it in, in the analog realm, and it's stuck. It stays better. <laughs> That's very specific, isn't it? <laughs> Is there something that you're trying to get out of the um, other mic alongside the Royer that you don't get out of the Royer? You know, it's either the reason I would do one or the other, like a condenser or a dynamic, is um, 
either I'm trying to brighten it up and open it up more with a condenser or I'm trying to just get more of a solid crunch or something with the dynamic. So it would depend if the player is like lighter uh, and their tone isn't overdriven, it would probably be the condenser mic. And then if they're doing something really punchy, probably a dynamic, you know, and I'll change the blend between songs and stuff. Like I'll, I'll just listen real quick and spin the dial and just be like, there you go. Just to get different sounds for every, you know, every track. Is it right up on the grill of the amp? Oh, um, depending. Yeah. You know, sometimes I'll put both the mics on the mic mount, the dynamount, and I'll move the whole assembly. I'll put them on a little stereo bar and try to get the phase lined up and then I'll move it back and forth. And the best thing is if you got like a rhythm guitar part and you got the whole band running in there, just move that, move it away from the amp and back until it sounds right. And it's amazing because when you hear everybody playing together, that difference that you get sometimes of just how the rhythm sits, depending on how close the mics are, is, is really fantastic. And then you know, you'll go in and look at it and be really surprised where it's ending up too. It might be pointing off to the left or something and that sounded better, you know? That's really a really smart way to work. And I wish I had like, you know, 10 of these dynamats and I could just have all the mics flying around. Yeah. <laughs> you know, have, and it's better than having an assistant move it because you just, They've got their prejudices and stuff, you know. It's yeah. better not seeing it move. <laughs> Look at it later and shake your head. <laughs> Have you ever um, blown out or come close to blowing out the ribbons on the Royals with a two-loud guitar amp? Just because I have a pair of them, and I don't really know what the threshold of... I think you got to get... The worst things are like kick drums and stuff, maybe bass amps sometimes, um, or, or Leslie's, you know, with the rotating speaker wind factor. Um, that I'll just blow it right out. But um, I've blown a few, but I, I'm pretty certain that it was other engineers that were in my studio. <laughs> you know, and the folks at Roy are, are so wonderful. They'll they'll take care of you. <laughs> no, I, because I have a few ribbon mics, and I'm I don't know if I'm always like overly cautious. And you know, when I when I carry them, I'm trying to look for something I could hold. Like if I'm carrying a ribbon mic around. I'll put my hand in front of the screen and walk over and set it up if I don't have a little cover on it, you know, because it's like I'm worried that I'm going to like stress it walking through the air. It's going to like a sail, you know, but it's nice to have those little cozies or whatever put on them, you know, <laughs> like you guys, you guys have your tea cozies, right? Yeah. Yeah. We don't have those over here. <laughs> so now you have mic cozies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, Use those pretty religiously for um, the warriors and the coals, just out of fear. Yeah, or just a Ziploc bag, you know, just pull it over there and tighten it off. Or especially if you're leaving stuff overnight, don't want to move it, you know. But people, people are the hardest thing is keeping people from walking up and like talking into like your 44 or something, you know, like oh, old radio, you know, and and they want to go pop, 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 you know, <laughs> get away from that, you know. <laughs> The worst thing I did was I, I took, I tried out, I took two PZM mics and I taped them together back to back and then put it on a stand like right over the drummer's head. And then he, he got excited and jumped, stood up and like the little corner <laughs> poked him in the head and he started bleeding. He was bald too. He didn't have any hair there to, to buffer it. And I was like, I felt so bad. Like there's a little blood running down off his head from the microphone. <laughs> Good story so, you at know, least. 
Get your revenge, right? Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever had a drummer break a snare microphone by hitting it? Um, no, but but the I mentioned earlier, like using those blue microphones, the dragonflies. I worked with the drummer. Oh gosh, what's his name? He's so good. The drummer from Hella. Um, he's like a monster. I did this session with uh, Janet Weiss from Slater Kenny and uh, Matt uh, Cameron from Soundgarden and and this guy from Hella, whose name I'm just blanking on. He's the nicest guy. Let's look him up. Um, and so it was three drummers all playing playing together just doing these drum jams. It's, a, it's available as a thing called his name is Zach Hill. Uh, Zach Hill's the drummer. He's played with other people since a lot of different things. And he's like a machine. He sounds like a, uh, a I described him as like a voca- broken video game exploding. Um, he just does these crazy mechanical sort of like, oh man, like machine gun fire or things. And I had to mic up three drum kits at once in the same room. It was in my old studio with no isolation. And, um, he was playing on the uh, using the the blue dragonflies on his toms, and like partway through, I was like, "God, that one sounds kind of weird and out of phase." And I went out there, and he'd hit it, and just just crumpled the little the little mesh on the capsule, and then spun around. It was pointing at the ceiling, <laughs> so I had to go back and get repaired. But actually, the capsule was okay. It was amazing. It was, they just had to fix the mesh. But you know, sometimes they break things, but. It's kind of the risk you take. I mean, you know, it's it's it would never be a thing to me like to blame someone for blowing out a ribbon mic or you know try to charge an artist for things like that because it's just part of the cost of what we do, you know. Keep everything running, you know. It's better to be and it's better to be nice and take the high road. <laughs> yeah. So I guess moving on to acoustic guitar, Japanese favorite Mike's techniques. You know, I just discovered one, and I just did a video about it for LinkedIn. Um, so I was going to show. I'm, I'm really, I really hate uh, mid side miking. I don't know how you can hate something like this. I love but it. I hate, it's been misused so much. So many times people use it when they shouldn't. You know, and and it can be very ineffective. Like so, I had someone do like a like a, a septet of cellos, right? And they're in an arc. And they did mid side like up kind of close. When you sum, when you go down to mono, you just hear the two cellos in the front middle, you know. And then it doesn't work, you know. Then everything on the sides disappears. So when you're too close to a source, mid side can be really detrimental, right? Across a room, it can be pretty cool. And so I wanted to do a video showing that if you put mid side on an acoustic guitar. You know, it's just if you the more you turn up the sides, the more phase cancels one side or the other, depending on your polarity of your center mic. And I was showing that and everything. But before I did that, I just tracked like, you know, one mic pointing at the guitar and one mic in figure eight and just blending those two together without just setting up mid side was fantastic. Like because this the figure eight mic is looking up and down the neck and there's no direct pick sound and the other mic is looking right at the pick. And so you can just kind of blend the two and get a nice balance of guitar. And I've never seen anyone do that. I've never heard people talk about using that technique. And, and so I did a little course where I, I did one where I did the mid side and I did one where I didn't. 
And uh, he, my studio manager was playing guitar, and even on the headphones, he goes, holy shit, that sounds good. <laughs> we were like, there's a new technique. So I like I like that one. I haven't used it on a record yet. But I'll frequently do, boy, I have a lot of different things for guitar. I mean, it could be like a ribbon mic, or it could be a, 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 an Earthworks, like a TC30K, so it doesn't have like proximity issues. It's an Omni small diaphragm, or it could be... Um, Sometimes I grab, I, you know what pair of mics I really like are the KSM 141s, the, the little small diaphragm condenser mics. They sell them in a pack for like less than 300 bucks for two. Yeah. And uh, and those mics are really quite good. They're kind of like a, a lower grade SM81 or something, you know. I don't know why people don't talk about them all the time. They got a bunch of settings for pads and roll off. and They're really handy. And those those will hold up fine if you do it right. I don't tend to do a ton of stereo miking on the acoustic guitar, although I might do like a, I might do, so if someone's going to be all acoustic guitar, like a songwriter record or something, there's not really other instruments, I might do like a, I might do like XY pair, like you're up near the 12th fret of the join, right? And then I might put a, a 121 or something, like a ribbon mic right between and behind it, or just getting like a lot of body and, and bulk to it and then like another pair of, of stereo mics back away from the guitar just for a little bit of ambience you know like, like four feet and if that so if that guitar has to carry the entire song and it's like maybe intricate picking or something that gives me a lot to work with you know so i do i do stuff like that that's a little bit involved but if it's in a bigger track with drums i might just go with like an re20 or or an sm7 or something a little flatter and more and less dynamic sounding and you know less dynamic as far as like uh, troughs and valleys of sound you know and uh, and so that'll get like just kind of i want almost like a papery tone that just holds up on the on the mix so you know just different things and the different guitars will sound different too I'll, i have a few acoustic guitars there that i'll swap out with people if they're when they're sound fuzzy or weird to me and i have a nashville strung uh, acoustic with all the high strings and I might have people play that instead or double up parts, you know, do a lot of things. Something I found with mid side, especially doing it closer is I found that often you don't need to put the two mics in the same, because I know traditionally to keep the phase the best, you put them as close right. together as possible. But I found kind of differently, like I quite often not have them, that near together and get really good results like have the mid mic like a small diaphragm mic kind of further up pointing down to the guitar mm -hmm. and i'll have the side mic kind of just more like in front of the sound hole but further out just rejecting that as much as yeah. possible and i've had very good results yeah. with that i just don't i don't like things disappearing when i go to mono <laughs> i just want it to be i want it to be rock solid so that for me it's always like nah I'll just do like X, Y or something if I want to do that. Cause it just, it really offends me to have the mid side thing. I, when I hear that, even in the background, like the out of phase left and right, it, I, it just makes me queasy too. So even it's blended in pretty low, I sort of kind of go, oh, I hear it. I hear it. I don't like it. You know, I find it quite dangerous. <laughs> so they'll just avoid it. <laughs> I'll be on my ramp, my rampage trying to dissuade people from using it. And I've gotten, and part of the reason I do that, and part of the reason I, I'm on the 
rant is is that people send me stuff to mix all the time and and so often they've just discovered midside as a concept and they're just misapplying it all over the place and i've got to just go and use the center mic or whatever so it's kind of like they're spending all this time doing something that's not even effective it's like they should really hold off on that until there's like a specific way it's going to work to capture something better That's my thought, my rant. <laughs> what um, situations in mono are you worried about it disappearing in? Because that's something I think about too, but I'm not sure in what situations <laughs> people actually listen in mono. Um, you know, I mean, I think it when the speakers blend and the and the playing back in a space, you do you get cancellation there even, and uh, I don't know. I just you know I think when with the the current climate like with streaming and stuff whenever you're whenever the streaming um is less than optimal sometimes it'll it'll kind of go down to mono almost you know there's less stereo content so i worry about that you know i just really try to make sure my mixes really hold up no matter what so i'm pretty methodical about checking phase and polarity and and determining you know what sources really are stereo or not you know like the old logic export where it send you everything as a stereo file when even when it's not you know <laughs> you got to sit there and, and null everything with the phase flip and see what's really happening you know so i get a, i get kind of like meticulous with that stuff because i don't want i don't want some technical factor to, to destroy a mix or something yeah. but, and a lot of times people are their ears are excited by out of phase you know because it's a great way to present a sort of width but you know it's sort of like eating candy. You're going to get cavities, you know? <laughs> I think the last instrument we haven't talked about is bass. Do you have any kind of standard oh. techniques? <laughs> you know, my preference, honestly, with an electric bass is to just get a good DI. And if you do that really well, um, you've got a lot you can work with. You can also always reamp it if you went, went wrong. Um, but, if someone has a lot of character to their tone, um, an amp sometimes adds that extra part that you're not going to get. But I use, a, I have a, a bass a DI called Tonecraft, um, which is kind of not very very common. Uh, and it's just like a tube. It's like the front end of an Ampeg B15, like the two tone knobs and a volume knob. It's got a pull on the volume that'll overdrive it in a really like, creamy, saturated way. And um, it's got two outputs, and you know it'd be a great front end for like a power amp and a 15-inch speaker. It would be amazing bass amp, and I'll track bass through that all the time. If I'm playing bass on it, I just use that because it sounds great to my ear. There's no, you don't have to worry about that phase aspect of a speaker and a microphone being being later in time than your DR. Um, although when I do when I do mic up a bass amp, a tradition I generally want it to be like a single 15. Uh, I've got an Ampeg B15, an old 60s one at the studio that a friend's loaned me forever because he found it for 25 bucks at the thrift store. <laughs> and uh, I like I like using that. It's got a real kind of like the mid-range articulation is very specific. But if someone wants a more like, you know, present modern tone, I've got like a solid state Fender amp and a 15-inch speaker that will give more of that bite and stuff. You know, and I'll... To keep polarity, like if I'm tracking a DI and an amp, 
I use the Little Labs uh, IBP hardware, which is, allows you to dial in like an analog uh, in-between phase uh, situation. So you can just put that on the DI and then listen and just turn the knob till it sounds best as far as the polarity relationship. So I always do that too before I track and I'm probably running them through 1176s as well, compressing everything. <laughs> what um, kind of proportion of the time do people use your drum kits and amps compared to bringing their own? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Probably half and half. You know, I get some clients that fly in from other places and so they'll definitely want to use. We have an old 60s Ludwig kit. It's my wife's. And so we'll use her kit sometimes. And I have another, there's a Portland brand called Allegra, which is more kind of like a DW style, modern sort of tone. And so the two of them are very different. And then a bunch of snares, like I said, a bunch of cymbals. I have tons of cymbals. I don't know where they all came from. And, uh, and hardware and all that stuff. So sometimes the drummers just go, hey, it'll be easier. Or I know what he has, you know. And other times they have a specific thing they want. So they bring that. That's fine. I'll sub it all out anyway. <laughs> hey, how about this snare? <laughs> so um, I guess lastly, do you have any sort of weird esoteric gear at your studio that you're super fond of and kind of, even if it doesn't get used much, you don't want to get rid of? Oh, yeah. Gee. And one of the weird things about running a facility that's not just for me is that you hang on to stuff because other people say they want to use it, you know? <laughs> Or they get excited about it. Like I really, for years, I don't think, I think I have a Roland Space Echo, like a, a 201. And I don't think I used it for about 15 years. <laughs> and finally someone was like, please, please, please. And I put it on. I'm like, hey, that's pretty cool. So, you know, I get my biases about my own equipment. Um, I love the, the EMT 140 plate reverb that we have. And it's been heavily modified by my neighbors at Hampton. Uh, with with new everything except for the plate and the pickups are left and everything else got taken out and rebuilt. Um, it's all like JFET amplifiers and stuff. And to my ear, it just sounds fantastic. Um, and and on that on that reverb, I put one of those Dynamount, uh, like just a one axis Dynamount that they make. I put it on there to control the big knob, you know, where you can set your decay time of your reverb. So from the control room and on the app on my phone or an app on the, on the computer, I can go and just dial how much reverb and just sit and listen to it. So that's kind of nerdy. <laughs> I love that. Um, you know, there's the thing. I have tons of stomp boxes. Like I got a bunch of Earthquaker uh, stomp boxes and Cattle and Bread and uh, Chase Bliss, all these kind of like, you know, more slightly esoteric brands that all do really weird things. So I'm really into that, you know, and I got one of these like T-Rex fuel, fuel tanks or something that you can just plug power them all from and I'll set them. And oh, and I use this other thing called a radio SGI, which is allows you to send guitar signal down like mic lines. So, so you can plug the guitar in in the control room, set up all these stomp boxes and pipe it out to an amp and do all your overdubs in there. And it gives you a lot of like communication to talk with the person and, and change your tones immediately and, and just change your, you know, play with their pickups and stuff while they're playing and see what works best. So I like to, I like to get really hands on with that kind of stuff. So all those things make that really easy, you know? 
it's not something, not something I see discussed a ton, you know. I think that's all my questions. So thank you so much for speaking with me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, man. It was really fun to talk. Yeah. Thanks a lot.